Sovereign Grace Church, Pasadena, good afternoon. If you can make your way back in and find your seats. My name is Tim Owens. I am one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. If you are just joining us, we are about five weeks into a series in the book of Acts. Just as a brief recap, Acts, as you know, is written by Luke. And it picks up, the story picks up right where the gospel of Luke ends. With Jesus' last instructions to his disciples before he ascends to the Father. Now, as I said last week, the opening line of the book makes it clear that in Luke's eyes, at least, the book of Acts and all the events contained in the book of Acts are about what the risen and ascended Christ continues to accomplish by the power of the Holy Spirit in and through his church. Now, for the last couple of weeks, we have been in chapter 2, and Luke relates in Acts chapter 2 the events of the day of Pentecost. The chapter opens with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the full new covenant measure, and the outpouring of the Spirit is accompanied by miraculous signs, by the sound of a mighty rushing wind and flames of fire dividing themselves and placing themselves on all the disciples' foreheads and by speaking in tongues. And these miraculous signs, they draw a crowd. And in verse 14, Peter stands up to address the crowd and answer their question. What does this mean? And his answer, as we said last week, has two main parts to it. First, explanation, and then proclamation. Now, Last week, we spent time looking at Peter's explanation of the miraculous signs that drew the crowd. And he said that what they were witnessing was the fulfillment of a prophecy from the book of Joel, specifically from Joel chapter 2, where Joel predicted that one day the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all of God's people, and all of God's people would prophesy. Now, In verse 22, Peter transitions from Joel's prophecy about the Spirit and moves into a proclamation of Jesus' life and ministry. Let's read the text together, and then we will pray and begin. We're going to be reading Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, and going all the way through verse 41. So starting in Acts 2. 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One 
see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Father, we pray that something like what happened that day would happen again today. That through the preaching of your word, you would send your Holy Spirit to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in our minds and hearts, to exalt him in a deeper and more full way than maybe we have ever seen him before. And I pray that you would cause us to walk out of here living in light of the glory of who Jesus really is. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you may already know this about me, but I love the mountains. I love nearly everything about the mountains. I love the geography. I love the weather. I'm one of those sappy people who gets a little bit emotional at John Weir quotes. The mountains are calling, and I must go to them. And there are many reasons that I love the mountains, but one of the reasons, one of the key reasons, is because of the the visual beauty that is unique to the mountains, because of the contrast that the mountains create in the landscape. So when you look at clouds in a flat place, all you see is clouds. But when you see the clouds in the mountains, 
a whole new aspect of their beauty comes out as the clouds weave in and out of the various ranges and then all of a sudden a range pops out in front and you can see layer upon layer of peaks behind the clouds. A sunset is beautiful no matter where you are, but a sunset in the mountains, that is a whole different deal as each, each face of the mountains catches the light a different way. You know, when you're driving in the mountains, every time you go around a turn, a whole new vista opens up to you. The mountains look different from every angle. There's more beauty to see. You know, in a flat landscape, distances are hard to measure. Scale becomes a little bit tricky. I read recently in a New York Times article that if you're standing on top of the tallest building in the world, that's the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building is 2,716 feet high. It is in Dubai, which happens to be in the middle of a very flat place, the Arabian Desert. If you're on top of that building, the human eye can see for 60 miles. But my question is, why would you want to see 60 miles of the desert? The, the whole vista blends together into sand <laughs> in the mountains. You can't see 60 miles, but in the one mile that you can see, your eye is drawn to every detail because of the contrast created by the geography. In our text today, Peter is going to draw our eyes to an immense contrast. He is going to describe the mountain peaks of God's power and love, the peaks Right next to those highest of peaks, Peter will show us the deep darkness of the human condition. You could summarize the text this way. God has confirmed that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, exposing the depth of our depravity and the beauty of our Savior. Peter's going to describe God the Father's own testimony about Jesus. Peter doesn't just tell us about Jesus from his own experience. Peter is revealing to us God the Father's perspective on God the Son. He's going to argue that God was intentionally demonstrating something in every stage of Jesus' life and ministry, from his birth to his ascension and exaltation at the right hand of God. God is going to show us who Jesus really is, and that will show you who you really are and what we must do. Peter's argument proceeds chronologically through Jesus' life and ministry, and there are five steps in his argument making up the five points in the sermon today. Point number one, God attests in verse 22. Point number two, God planned verse 23. Point number three, God raised, verses 24 to 32. Point number four, God exalted, verses 33 to 35. And point number five, God confirmed. Let's look together at point number one. God attests. Look back at verse 22 and read it along with me. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves know. Now let's stop right there. This is something of an abrupt transition, is it not? We need to remember where we were last week. Peter has just quoted the prophet Joel to explain the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so you might expect that his next words would be about the prophecy from the book of Joel. You might expect, men of Israel, hear these words, the Holy Spirit, but that's not what he says. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Peter wants to talk about Jesus. He seems to be saying, yes, the prophet Joel confirms this was the Holy Spirit, and the last days have begun, but the crucial thing for you to know in the last days is who Jesus is. And what he has done. Friends, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He exalts Christ. He applies the finished work of Jesus, making Jesus' saving work effective in our hearts. And and this is exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. In John 15, 26, in the middle of the longest discourse we have, about three chapters of information describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says this, But when the Helper comes, that is the Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit is exalting Christ. This is one of the primary ways we test the gifts of the Spirit to know if they have been twisted, if they're being abused. Is, is the person who's using the gifts exalting Christ, or are they exalting him or herself? That's one test for whether or not the Spirit is truly at work. Is Jesus being lifted up? And before we dig into the rest of this text, we just have to stop and admire the complete unity and cooperation of the Trinity in the work of redemption. What we have here in the first sermon of the New Testament church is Peter, empowered by God the Spirit, proclaiming what God the Father has done in and through the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of God the Son. There's no striving within the Trinity There's no self-exaltation desire, selfish ambition within the Trinity. There's perfect unity and love. So back to the text in verse 22. The Holy Spirit empowers Peter to preach Christ. And what does Peter tell us about Jesus? Look back at verse 22. A man, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works. Peter is saying God was attesting to something about Jesus through his miracles. That is, God was showing us something. He was demonstrating something to us through the miracles. So the miracles were meant to be a sign from God that Jesus is not a mere man. They were meant to indicate that something is unique about this man. He's no mere man. And in fact, Jesus himself pointed to the miracles as evidence of his identity. Do you remember the story when when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one? Are, Are you the Christ or should we be waiting for someone else? And how does Jesus respond to him? He says this in Luke 7, 22. Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk 
Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Pause and think about the miracles that are attributed to Jesus in his incarnation. He raised the dead. The man walked on water. He healed long-term illness and injury with a touch or a word. He cured blindness, cast out demons, calmed storms with a rebuke. We are not dealing with an ordinary man. But I want you to note what Peter emphasizes here. He does not emphasize the fact that the, the miracles actually happened. That's not what is at issue. And in fact, he says the crowd, they already knew that. No, nobody disputed the miracles during Jesus' lifetime. They all knew something extraordinary was happening. What Peter emphasizes here is that the miracles were from God. You see that at the end of verse 22? Signs that God did through him in your midst. Peter is preaching to an audience of devout Jews. They're in Jerusalem for a religious ceremony. They believe in the existence of God. What is at issue is that they do not believe that Jesus was from God. What's at stake in Peter's argument is the identity of Christ. Who was he? Who was this man, in fact? And that is point number one. Peter claims that in the miracles, God meant to signal something about Jesus' identity. And he's going to show us exactly what that means as his argument unfolds. And that brings us to point number two. God planned. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Folks, this is such an important verse. Here we have the seeds of the doctrine of the atonement. Here we have the highest mountain peak and the lowest valley imaginable. Peter tells us that God's loving plan of redemption and mankind's murderous hatred coincided in the exact same event. This is how John Stott put it. Thus, the same event, the death of Jesus, is attributed simultaneously both to the purpose of God and to the wickedness of men. Let's take these two opposite motivations that were at work in Christ's death one at a time. First, mankind murdered God the Son. Look at the simple but devastating accusation that Peter levels against the crowd that day. He starts by saying, this Jesus. He, he uses the pronoun. This is the first of three times that he's going to refer to Jesus this way. This Jesus. He wants the crowd to know, this Jesus that I'm describing is the one you killed. And in this immediate context, he's referring back to his thought from verse 22. What did he say in verse 22? That Jesus was working miracles. God was working miracles through Christ. 
this Jesus, the one who was working the miracles that God attested to you with mighty works and wonders and signs, that is the one that you killed. Now we have to pause and step back from the text and think deeply about this accusation. We were not present at Jesus' death. We were not in the crowd on Good Friday screaming crucify him when Pilate offered to release Jesus or Barabbas. But the New Testament tells us something about the nature of sin, including your sin and my sin, that places us in the realm of being complicit in the crime. The New Testament tells us this, sin at its very essence is hostility toward God. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 7, for the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And he says again in Colossians chapter 1, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. Folks, if we don't get this element of Peter's sermon, we might as well all go home right now. Apart from God's grace, that is what we are like. You and I, apart from the grace of God, harbor hostility toward God. The Greek word here can mean enemy. It can mean hatred. It can mean animosity. Left to ourselves, we hate God. We share in the same disease of hatred and wickedness that led the Jewish people to crucify Jesus. John Piper put it this way, speaking of this very text in Acts chapter 2. The question is not, were you bodily there on Good Friday voting against Jesus and sending him to his death? Peter is asking, do you join God in his affirmation of Jesus? Or do you stand against God in the life of Jesus? Do you agree with God about Jesus? Or do you reject his endorsement of Jesus? At precisely the same moment when God was reaching out in compassion and love to save mankind, we responded by murdering God the Son. What a crushing indictment. This is what sin is like. This is what sin does to us. It causes us to kill the miracle worker. It causes us to crucify the healer. Apart from grace, each one of us is predisposed to be hostile, resistant, and adversarial toward God the Son. But praise be to God that man's anger and hostility was not the only thing at work in the crucifixion. Look back at verse 23. This Jesus, the miracle worker, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The murder of Jesus was according to plan. When we ask the question, why did Christ die? That's the title of a chapter in John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. When we ask that question, who killed Jesus? There is a sense in which there are three different and completely true answers to that question. First, those immediately physically responsible for his death. 
So the Jewish leaders, Pilate, Judas, Judas Iscariot, the Roman soldiers, the people who actually physically conspired to kill him. Two, as we were just talking about, all of mankind was in a sense complicit and implicated by our hostility toward God and our wickedness and sin. But there is a third answer. And it is precious and it is massively important for us. The third answer is that God himself planned to willingly lay down his life for us. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Did the Roman soldiers take it from him? Did the Jewish leaders take it from him? No, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus knew. He was in on the plan. He knew what would happen if he came to this wicked place. But he did it voluntarily. Why? Of course, the entire Bible prepares us for the answer to that question. John the Baptist tells us that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Paul tells us Jesus' death was a propitiation of God's just and right anger against our wickedness, the kind of wickedness that would murder the miracle worker. But we don't have to look any further than Luke's own understanding of the atonement to understand God's plan and purpose in Jesus' death. This is what Luke writes in Luke 24, 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations. While mankind was murdering, God was forgiving. While mankind was hostile and angry, God was humbling himself to death on a cross. Behold the depravity of man and the love of God. Do you feel the weight of the contrast that Peter is drawing in this verse? God planned it out of love. Man killed him out of anger. So to summarize, God was attesting to Jesus' divinity in the miracles. God was planning our salvation in his death. And that brings us to point number three. God raised him. In verses 24 to 32, Peter is mainly doing two things. First and foremost, he is asserting that the resurrection actually happened, that it is a historical fact, a real thing, not make-believe. It happened in history. Secondly, he is going to begin to connect Jesus to a group of promises in the Old Testament, a group of promises that focus on King David, the promises of the Messiah. Look at verse 24, and let's read it together. God raised him up. Again, 
note the contrast, the sharp contrast that Peter is drawing between what God is doing and what the people did. Peter just said, you killed him. Now he says, God raised him. What's more, it was not possible. Look at the end of verse 23, 24. God raised him because it was not possible for him to be held. It was impossible that Jesus should stay dead. We have to think about death from a biblical perspective, friends. Death is not merely a physical outcome. Death is a spiritual enemy. It is the divine consequence of sin. So Peter sees that a sinless one, a holy one, could not possibly be held by death. What's more, Peter is saying that in the resurrection, God was emphatically rejecting mankind's evaluation of Jesus. This is what F.F. Bruce says. The sentence passed on Jesus by an earthly court and executed by Roman soldiers has been reversed, Peter asserts, by a higher court. They put him to death. God raised him up and loosed the pangs of death. Then in verse 25 through 28, Peter is going to move into a quotation of Psalm 16. He's using it as evidence that King David predicted the resurrection of Jesus. I wish we had more time to devote to meditating on Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, which Peter's going to quote a couple verses later in verse 34. We could do a whole sermon on Peter's use of the Psalms. And that, that's something that if you are so inclined, you might do in your personal devotions over the next week. Go to Psalm 16, go to Psalm 110, and ask yourself, how do these psalms point us to Christ? But here, we need to summarize how Psalm 16 functions in Peter's argument, within the overall argument. And Peter tells us exactly how it functions in verses 30 and 31. In verses 30 and 31, Peter confirms that in Psalm 16, David was meditating on God's promise to him. You see that in verse 30? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. This is a promise that we have recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel, God promises that one of David's offspring will have something incredibly unique. You might even be tempted to say impossible. God, God promises that one of David's descendants will have an eternal kingdom that would be established by God himself. Now, how can a human offspring have an eternal kingdom? So picture yourself, picture David meditating, writing Psalm 16. He's meditating on God's promise to him that that one of his descendants is going to have an eternal kingdom. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David prophetically sees that there must be an eternal king then, a king who cannot be held by the bonds of death So in verse 31, Peter tells us that David is prophesying about the resurrection of Jesus. And this means two very important things to Peter. First, it means that the Old Testament prophets point to Jesus. 
He calls David a prophet. David is speaking prophetically in Psalm 16. And Peter is connecting the dots and saying the Old Testament points to Christ. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, each aspect of his life and ministry are a fulfillment of promises that God made to his people. And two, specifically, Jesus is the promised Davidic king. Look at the terminology in verse 31. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. The Christ. This is the first time that this phrase, that this title for Jesus is used in the book of Acts. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah, what does that mean? It means the anointed one. You can make an argument that this title for Jesus in the book of Acts becomes the the most influential paradigm for understanding Jesus' life and ministry in the book of Acts. This connects Peter's audience, Jewish people, Jewish religious people. It connects them to their most cherished hope that one day God would send a king in David's line who would deliver them. That is the connotation of the word Christ. That's the meaning of the word Messiah. It means deliverer, savior, the promised one who would save God's people and defeat their enemies and restore peace and prosperity. Every time you see the word Christ in the New Testament, it is not a throwaway name. It's pointing to the Savior. It's pointing to Jesus' saving work. He is a deliverer. He came to save us. Now, Peter finishes his point on the resurrection in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter says, God raised him. The Old Testament prophets predicted it, and the apostles saw it happen. And so it was that the church of God was built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Do you want to stake your life on something? Stake your life on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no other credible explanation for the explosive growth of the New Testament church. There is no other credible explanation for the transformation of this group of scared men hiding behind locked doors after Jesus' death into the bold preaching martyrs that they would soon become. Folks, the resurrection actually happened in history. Jesus is alive and he is ruling and reigning even now as Peter is about to explain in the next point of his sermon So to summarize, so far we have seen that God the Father was attesting to Christ's divinity through the miracles. God was planning the salvation of his people through Christ's death. And though man killed Jesus in hatred, God raised him to life and confirmed that he is the Messiah, the Davidic king who was to come. And that brings us to point number four. God exalted him. Look at verse 35, 34 and 35. For David did not ascend into the, oh no, let's, let's start with verse 33, back up a little bit. Being therefore exalted 
at the right hand of God. Being therefore, what is that, what is that therefore doing? What is he doing there? So he's just finished making a point on the resurrection. He's saying the resurrection is real. It really happened, folks. God raised him. I saw it. The prophets predicted it. The resurrection was real. But then he has this transition in verse 33. Being therefore exalted. What is the logic of that therefore? To Peter and to every other New Testament author, the resurrection has a deeply significant meaning. It is not simply that Jesus is alive. It's that God has conferred a certain status on Jesus. You see, Jesus' resurrection was qualitatively different than the other people we see in Scripture who are raised from the dead. So you think of Jairus' daughter, you think of Lazarus. These people were raised with the old-style body, the style of body that's breaking down, the kind of body that you and I have. They were raised to one day die again. That is not what happened with Jesus. Jesus was raised as conqueror of death, never to die again. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Pay close attention because he uses almost exactly the same logic as Peter does in our text today. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We've heard something like that. Concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. We've heard something like that. And was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. By what? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The resurrection And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit proved that God the Father was not only accepting Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, but also exalting Jesus to the place of highest power and authority in the universe, the right hand of the throne of God. That is why Peter goes to Psalm 110 in verse 34. Now, you may or may not know this, but Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. That should get our attention. We need to be familiar with this psalm, which is another psalm written by David. Jesus applies this psalm to himself in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110 several times and dedicates almost all of chapter 7 to explaining how this psalm points to Jesus Christ. What is Psalm 110 about? Psalm 110 is about a warrior king who is also an eternal priest. A king described this way, a king who will shatter the kings of the earth on the day of his wrath and execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Folks, Psalm 110 is a reference to a different side of Jesus' character than the one we saw in the incarnation. It is about his absolute power as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, a king who will bring all things under his dominion, a king whose enemies will be made like a stool for his feet. That's how weak his enemies are in comparison to his power. Peter is about to summarize his entire argument in one verse, just a few words in verse 36. And he's going to bring together three things, 
that if you understand and believe them, they will illuminate your path forward. The breathtaking beauty and majesty of Jesus' identity and power set against the hostile depravity of the heart of man. And that brings us to our final point. God confirms. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let every person in this room know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Look at the precious word, both. Both. He is both Lord and and Christ. Jesus is both omnipotent judge and king who will defeat all of his enemies, and he is the Christ, the Savior, the one who laid down his life to save the Messiah, willingly laying down his life for his sheep. Church family, here is the beauty of Christ. He is the strong one, yet he became weak. He is the holy one, yet he bore our sin. He is the king, but he became poor. He is a warrior, but he allowed himself to be killed. He is high and exalted, but he became gentle and lowly. He did not have to wait to defeat his enemies. He could have killed us all with a word. But he is compassionate and kind. And it is not his will that any should perish. He is the lion and the lamb. Behold your Savior. But Peter says at the end of verse 36 that is who you killed. He emphasizes it. This Jesus, the mighty one who humbled himself to save you, the terrifying Lord of glory at the right hand of the Father who is also the humble Savior, you killed him. You killed him. I have two observations to make about this. And then we will close with some thoughts on application. First, What does this say about us? We cannot miss the absolute depravity of the human heart on display in this text. This is the essence of Satan and sin. To deceive us into hating and killing God the Son when he was in the very act of demonstrating a love so severe, so sincere, and so deep that the most powerful person in the universe would allow himself to be mocked, beaten, and killed by the very people he came to save. I plead with you, I plead with myself to see sin for what it really is. In this text, it is hostility toward the God of love, and it ends in our death. It is deceptive. It promises fulfillment apart from God and his ways and sets us against the only one who can save and satisfy you. Now, 
What does this say about Jesus? What does this text tell us about Jesus? He's both. He is Savior and Lord. The most astounding contrast in this passage is not between God's goodness and man's depravity. But the most astounding thing in this passage is that someone this powerful and this holy would humble himself so completely. Jesus' magisterial lordship makes his humiliation on the cross astoundingly beautiful. The worship team can come on up. I think that the text makes our application today blatantly obvious. Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. When this truth sinks in, the truth of Jesus' identity, that Jesus is the Lord of glory, that he is the King of kings, that that Jesus is the Lord of Psalm 110, the one who will make all his enemies as a footstool for his feet, who will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath, that that is Jesus, that Jesus is the lion, but that Jesus is also the lamb who humbled himself to death for our salvation. When that truth sinks in, set against the backdrop of our utter hostility and hatred and mistreatment of our Savior, there is only one response. And it is repentance. If you are sitting here today and you have never repented of your sins and placed your whole faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on your behalf. This text urges you to repent. The powerful one came gentle as a lamb. He came to save, but one day he will return as a lion. The conquering king of Psalm 110 and all his enemies will be defeated forever. Repent of your sins and receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you, if you will receive it by repentance and faith. And two, if you are a Christian today, are you living in light of this Jesus? Can you imagine a bigger picture of your Savior? Have you minimized this Jesus? Are you aware that he is the Lord of Psalm 110? Not just the lamb. Is your life impacted by that reality? Are you living a lifestyle of repentance and worship? You see, when we repent, then the Lord of glory in Psalm 110 becomes an unspeakable consolation to us. We come under his protection. Now his enemies are our enemies. He's going to protect us with his power and save us with his power. Are you living a lifestyle of repentance Are you aware of sins in your life today? Do you see sin for what it really is? Hostility toward the God of love. It is deceptive and you cannot have Jesus as Savior apart from Jesus as 
Lord, he is both. Let him lead you further into his beautiful holiness and purity. And let this picture of Christ, the lion and lamb, lead you to worship him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please do not let us walk out of here without a clearer picture, a clearer vision of the mountains of your majestic power and love. Please send your spirit even now to impact us at the heart level with the reality of who you are. You are the risen and reigning king and you came in humiliation and humbled yourself to death on a cross that we might be saved. May we not overlook it. May we not minimize who you are and shrink you down to our own comfortable picture. You are the Lord of glory and you are the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus, help us to live in light of that. We pray this in your name. Amen.